0: What does mathematics have to do with storytelling? Well, more than you think, as we will see in this episode of the Earth Skills podcast. Just like in episode one, I'll be talking about fairy tales. But instead of the real places Clark travels to, this episode's topic is her emotional journey. The journey I'm talking about starts in episode 8 of season 2, when Clark kills Finn. The journey ends in episode 316, when she terminates the City of Light. One of the things I noticed when watching season 3 is that Clark did not use her healing skills for almost the whole season. When she does in Nevermore, it's a sign that something has changed. But to fully understand why and how... We need to go back to before clark killed finn and when she was using her medical knowledge to the fullest but since every journey requires some preparation we'll start in the library in this library segment i'm going to talk about story structures i admit That does sound a bit dry, but if you love Clark as much as I do, I think you're going to find this very interesting. In episode 1 of this podcast, when talking about mythology and fairy tales and their relationship to the dystopian genre, I explained that in the 1970s, feminists outed their dissatisfaction with existing literary research methods that favoured works written by men about men. This research was problematic, because it limited the possibilities of interpreting stories with female protagonists. Due to the rise in the number of women in higher education, a whole new range of fairy tales and fairy tale theory was created in the 1970s. In the 90s, rooted in this kind of thinking, Maureen Murdoch wrote a book called The Heroine's Journey, because she found that at that point, still, There wasn't enough solid literary theory, which could serve to analyze stories with female protagonists. Murdoch based her theory on Joseph Campbell's work, titled The Hero's Journey. Campbell based his theory on psychoanalysis and said that myths are universal manifestations of the need for spiritual aid in the passage from childhood to adulthood. And he kind of has a point. Many tales and myths follow the same pattern. So much so that even before Campbell wrote his book, people started to mathematically analyze them. Vladimir Propp is one of these people. He was a Russian folklorist who analyzed the plot of Russian folk tales to identify a basic common structure. He was very adamant that there was only one structure. ...that was followed by all Russian tales, and he was determined to find it. In the 1920s, he composed what he called a standard morphology of folk tales, consisting of 22 steps. Now, I'm not going to name all of them, but I'll list some of the most important ones. In the beginning of a story, the hero is at home and at peace. Something happens, though, which disrupts this peace... And forces the hero to leave home. He gets up to all kinds of shenanigans and is often seduced by the villain into doing something which harms his own family. Later on he has to prove himself, save his family and perform other heroic tasks. Often he comes in contact with magic. In the end things finally go right and the hero returns home. Like I said, the result of Propp's research is a morphology, which means he focused exclusively on the form of folk tales, their structure. But this kind of research leaves us with a blind spot. The contents are just as important. But even on that level, people have noted there are lots of commonalities between stories, and not just in tales from one region. No, Stories from all over the world show similar structures, characters, or lessons learned. The Arne-Thompson-Uther Index lists them all in several classifications. The first and second versions of this book were published in the early 20th century, and the last edit was done in 2004. This index classifies all Indo-European tales in categories. Allowing us to check whether a certain theme or motive occurs in just one region, or all over the world. The story we know as Cinderella, for example, has variations titled Cap of Rushes and "Tattercoats." Of course, like any classification system, the ATU index is not perfect. But the system shows that certain motives and themes are so popular that they've survived for decennia. Centuries, maybe even millennia. The hero's journey is a good example of this. According to Elizabeth Brown, it has become the basic narrative structure of most dystopian stories in the 21st century. If you want to know more about the relationship between the dystopian genre and fairy tale tropes, you should definitely check out episode 1. Let's circle back to Murdoch. She was unsatisfied with Campbell's ideas about female protagonists. According to Campbell, women didn't need a character journey. Because, and this is a quote, they're already at the point the male heroes are trying to get to. And another quote, she's always there and perpetually ready to foster. Communities, souls, bodies. End of quote. Ugh. This is blatantly sexist, of course, since it posits women's search for their own identity and sense of purpose as secondary to men's character journey. In Campbell's vision, women's emotional labor is only supposed to support men, not themselves. No wonder Murdoch desperately wanted to make a new model for analyzing female characters. She called it the heroine's journey. The heroine's journey is based on the idea that women in the Western world learn to live life according to male standards. If you recall from episode 1, our society values the characteristics associated with masculinity more than those that are seen as feminine. In this case, Murdoch is talking about rationality, being active, living in the public sphere, and being competitive. Femininity, on the other hand, is linked to emotionality, being passive, living in the private sphere and being caring. According to Murdoch, adhering to quote-unquote male standards results more quickly in psychological and physical problems. This counts for men and women as well, but her book focuses on women alone. The women she writes about denounce their own inner feminine while pursuing their masculine goals within a masculine framework. This goes well for a while, but after some time they often break down or burn out. Hopefully, they then realize the root of their problems and make changes in order to let a more feminine view on life and the world back in. This burnout, this feeling of being fed up with society's male standards, is one of the core elements of the heroine's journey. It is often called the Descent, because the character retreats into her own. In mythology, this is often visualized by the character entering the underworld. In Murdoch's model, the Descent is right in the middle. So what happens before, and after, and how does all this relate to Clark? The heroine's journey consists of ten steps and is based on the contrast of masculine and feminine characteristics. The point of the heroine's journey, though, is not to fluctuate between these masculine and feminine characteristics and keep seeing them as opposed to each other, but to combine them. At the end of the story, the protagonist must have learned that being too competitive is just as problematic as being too focused on exclusively caring for others, for example. What constitutes masculine and feminine differs from story to story. For Clark, I quickly figured out what symbolized the feminine. It's something she has in common with her mother, Abby, medical knowledge and healing skills. Throughout the show, other similarities between Clark and Abby are emphasized. Both wear clothes in almost exclusively blue tones, and in season 2 they have the same hairstyle. Two strands from the side of their forehead twisted and pulled back, evoking the imagery of a crown or even a halo. Circles like this are an ancient symbol for the feminine. But where Abby's hairdo stays the same, Clark's changes with the phases of the heroine's journey, indicating a split from the feminine. So, Clark clearly resembles her mother. But since she has two parents, she must have something in common with her father as well. If the feminine is symbolized in Clark's healing abilities, is then her ability to kill and destruct a symbol of the masculine? Jake Griffin's greatest dilemma is choosing between A. letting every citizen of the Ark die for sure by not telling them about the oxygen problem, or B. Probably letting every citizen of the Ark die by crowdsourcing the solution and hoping it would work in time. Jake and Abby both have to make decisions about life and death, although on a different scale. Abby's choices as chief of medical aren't less important because she just handles one life at a time. Remember when she used more medicine than was allowed in season 1 to save Jaha? The implications of this choice go beyond the one life she saves or not. She put her own life on the line as well, because she did something illegal. Jake's choice, on the other hand, is framed as in the interest of his people, but ultimately has a very personal impact as well, especially on Clark and her decision-making later in the story. So to recap, both of Clark's parents have a self-sacrificing nature. I don't think we're supposed to see them as complete opposites, with Abby representing life and Jake representing death. The only clear support for that theory I see is the fact that Abby is alive and Jake is dead. But as I explained in episode 2, in many stories, legends and tales, life and death are seen as linked to each other through the cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth. If we view the story of the hundred through this lens, Abby and Jake represent two facets of one idea, not two separate ideas. Clark, their daughter, has to learn to combine both elements, to integrate them to become a fully realized person. This is her main struggle throughout seasons 2 and 3. So let's recap what we've learned in this episode so far. We've seen that there is an age-old tradition of telling and writing stories that follow a certain pattern. For most of the 20th century, models for analysing these patterns were catered to male protagonists, and as a result, to male readers. Maureen Murdoch brought some change into the literary studies landscape by developing The Heroine's Journey for stories with female protagonists. This model is based on the dichotomy, the opposition, between stereotypical female and male characteristics. In the case of The Hundred, Clark's feminine side is represented by her mother and their shared medical skills. Her masculine side is symbolized by the struggle with deciding which sacrifices to make, which is something Clark shares with her dad. Is Clark able to reconcile these two characteristics with each other? The answer will be coming to you in two weeks' time. Since this episode was rather theory heavy, I will keep the 10 steps of Clark's heroine's journey for the next episode. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out and follow the Earth Skills Podcast Twitter account, which is at earthskillspod.com and the Instagram, which is at EarthSkillsPodcast. I'm also on Tumblr, .tumblr EarthSkillsPodcast.tumblr.com. And if you like this or the previous episodes, please reblog, like and comment, and let your friends, family and, I don't know, your local librarian know that you do. Alright, you guys and gals and non-buying repels, I will see you, probably, when the next trailer drops. Bye.